Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Aaron. I'm Kate. And we will be learning about national anthems. Every week, we will choose a new country at random. We will learn a bit about that country, and then we will listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. Uh, we don't want you to think because of the title that we're really big fans of O Canada. If you don't know why we're saying this, uh, as I realize we've never explained the title before, it is a recently changed lyric from O Canada, the Canadian national anthem. Uh, and we just like to make fun of O Canada. We think it's a really shitty anthem and uh, we want excuses to talk about how much it sucks. I also just assumed that everyone would know what we were talking about. Yeah. Within all of us command, but... It's good. So this week we are going to be talking about the Vatican City. And something that's going to be a little unique to this episode is that this podcast so far, and presumably going forward, has been very broadly pro-self-determinism. We haven't yet found any reason to say this country shouldn't exist. So far, we're, we're really rooting for the people trying to make their own nation and not be ruled by someone else. Yep. That being said... The Vatican City should not exist. Uh, fuck the Vatican City. <laughs> this is the first time I'm coming down on the <laughs> other side of that issue. I think of any any country to come down on, this is probably your opportunity. Yes. Yeah. yeah I feel I'm going to get the least resistance out of this one. Well, yeah. I mean, how many people did you say live there? It's about a thousand people. And the thing about those a thousand people is no one is like, a born and raised citizen of the Vatican City. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand, people have been born there, even just like m single mothers seeking solace in the church will will go to deliver children there, as far as I've seen. I, w I looked it up. I wanted to be like, no one's ever been fucking born here. <laughs> but obviously that's not true. So. What? Do you get a passport? Do you get a Vatican City? I doubt it. Pa okay. Probably an Italian. That's too yeah. bad. Yeah, okay. It just, um, that would look... That'd be super cool if but, that existed. But all of those 1,000 people are mm -hmm. essentially employees of the Catholic Church. Yeah, so I think if anybody's coming down on you, it's going to be just employees of the Catholic Church. And yeah, and do we, you care? Know, we weren't going to be friends <laughs> anyways. No, no. Uh, the Vatican City is the third and final enclave country that we're going to be covering on this podcast. We have now gotten to all of them uh, after San Marino and Lesotho. So early. It is also by far the smallest nation on earth. Uh, it is the only nation whose area is more easily measured in hectares than in square kilometers <laughs> or square miles. That or cracks me up. It's uh, about 45 hectares. It's so tiny. It's really <laughs> tiny. Uh, so... A thing that's going to come up is a bit of confusion, and these are words that I've seen used, as far as I could tell, mostly interchangeably, uh, but I'm going to illustrate the difference here between the Vatican City and the Holy See, mm. uh, which, like I said, I've sometimes seen used seemingly just as another name for the Vatican City. But the difference is that the Vatican City is obviously the geographical location, the city itself, mm. whereas the Holy See refers to 
the Pope's entire jurisdiction. So we're talking about the Vatican City, but we're also talking about the Diocese of Rome, uh, over which the Pope is the bishop. Okay. And we're talking about, of course, the worldwide Catholic Church. Gotcha. So the Holy See is sort of a broader word for everything that the Pope is in charge of, of which Vatican City is a part. Okay. Uh, The word Vatican itself refers to a hill on the west bank of the Tiber River, and that's where the Vatican City is now. Um, It was originally known from the founding of Rome as Agar Vaticanus, and it was after the Roman Republic became the Roman Empire, it became a Vaticanum, which is where a lot of the Roman nobles would build their mansions and gardens and stuff. Uh, During that time, Caligula, the third, I believe, emperor of Rome, would build an enormous circus in Vaticanum. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the Roman sense of circus, (laughs) obviously, like a big racetrack arena for chariot races. Yes, not a place with tents and elephants, which is honestly where my brain went first. And I was like, Cirque du Soleil (laughs) in Vatican City. No, not like that. So I mention Caligula's circus because it would notably later be sort of renovated and renamed by Nero, and it would become Nero's circus. Mm. Nero obviously is most well known these days for the fire. Uh, As legend goes, he set the fire so he could blame it on the Christians and kill Mm. them en masse and then played the fiddle as Rome burned. It's a wonderful (laughs) legend that seemingly has very little basis, in fact. I hope he played the fiddle, though. Uh, Well, what I've seen as the main reason that uh, at least his involvement in the starting of the fire is disputed Mm. is that he just wasn't in Rome at the time. Oh. So... (laughs) Like, probably not. Maybe he was playing the fiddle several hundred miles away, not knowing it was happening. He was on a tour playing the fiddle. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that is also disputed, but at least from my research seems to be more possible, Mm -hmm. is that he did then scapegoat Christians for the fire. The degree to which Nero persecuted Christians is debated, But I think it's generally accepted that he did go after them to some degree. Mm. Um, In Christian tradition, Nero is, you know, one of the great villains who (laughs) rounded up the Christians en masse and fed them to the lions. And famously... Oh, that was him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I knew the thing about the lions, but I forgot who did it. This is the, the era of Rome we're talking about. And one of the big things that Nero supposedly did... and. This is one of those things that I, all of my sources said, like, historians dispute this, but this is what the Christian tradition says, and no one offered an alternative. Mm. So this is really the only story we have. Uh, supposedly, Nero executed St. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, mm-hmm. uh, at the circus. Uh, executed him by crucifixion and then beheading, is, Ooh. I believe, how the legend goes. Gross. Um, so the, the remains of St. Peter bounced around for a time. My understanding is that it's believed they were moved along with the remains of St. Paul to try to preserve them in these sort of Christian persecution era of Rome. Mm -hmm. Uh, but eventually they made their way back to 
this circus where he was executed. Uh, and it was the original St. Peter's Basilica that we're from here on out going to refer to as the old St. Peter's Basilica because it is not the one that stands today. Mm. Um, it was built over his tomb, ah. essentially. Okay. And okay. this was commissioned by the Emperor Constantine, mm-hmm. another very famous Roman emperor, and he is most famous for being the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Mm. So he is the one who made the Roman Empire like a Christian empire. Uh, He commissioned the old St. Peter's Basilica somewhere between 319 and 322 CE. Okay. And it took somewhere between 30 and 40 years to complete. So even the original one is like a pretty fucking big deal in terms of construction projects. But, uh... We ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) Oh, oh, we are getting into some construction later. The thing that I'm thinking about is that, like, back in the day, you were lucky if you lived to 40. So it'd be, like, even several people's lifetimes. Oh, yeah. Like, if you were born, maybe when you're old, you see the end of it. But that just, that's wild to me. I mean, wait till we get to the current Basilica. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I, as you say, I haven't seen anything yet. (laughs) Uh, but the the center the centerpiece of the original basilica was a shrine that supposedly held Saint Peter's bones. It was surrounded by this grand canopy with twisting columns, okay. and parts of these twisting columns were then reused in the new oh, basilica, which is pretty cool. cool. Um, so, with the conversion of the Roman Empire fall or with the uh, Constantine's personal conversion, at least a lot of other Roman nobles started to convert to Christianity as well. Mm-hmm. And Constantine donated some land to the church, which led them to other nobles starting to donate land to the church. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden the church starts to become very, very rich <laughs> over the next two or three centuries by about 600 AD. They would be one of the single largest landholders in Europe. Wow. Uh, the Holy See would be. So yeah, they, as soon as Constantine converts, they've got the full weight of the Roman empire behind them. Like yeah. that's no small change in your fortunes. No, no, that's true. Rome um, is the big guys. And, but, uh, Also around 600 AD, this is where the Roman Empire is falling. Mm. Like, uh, I think by 600 AD, we've split into East and West. Um, The the Roman Empire at this point, because it was so much weaker than it was at its height, would end up relying on the Holy See a lot for military strength. Mm. So the Holy See was actually really instrumental in stopping the invasion of Attila the Hun, who came through Slovenia, as we learned previously. (laughs) Uh, And they also stopped a number of other uh, invasions, mainly from the Lombards I saw. Uh, I just wanted to take a little moment here, uh, because we're going to talk about the Roman Empire a lot, a lot, over the course (laughs) of this podcast. And I think it's kind of fucked up that we've all still we're all just still totally cool with the narrative that they're barbarian invasions yeah 
I haven't thought about that in a long As time. As if but civilization didn't exist outside of the Roman Empire. It's kind of fucked up that we still talk about it that way, whatever, 1,500 years later. And it's fully what they told me oh, in yeah. school, like, multiple times. Oh, no, if I hadn't written the word barbarian on my, like, high school history essay, I'd have lost <laughs> marks. But they were, I guess, individual people also. Yeah, so I'm going to try as best I can when we're talking about the quote-unquote barbarian invasion period to identify the actual peoples that we're talking about. That sounds good. I'm (laughs) grateful for this because they neglected in high school and other times also. But uh, outside of Attila's invasion, it does seem it was mainly the Lombards that the Holy See uh, aided with the defense against. Mm. Uh, The Holy See would remain under the Byzantine Empire after the fall of the West, but there was really increasing tension between the empire and the popes over uh, taxation and religious differences. This is where uh, a really big thing started up in the Byzantine Empire, a really big turn of religion known as iconoclasm, Uh, And basically they were all about disregarding these huge earthly idols that people have built up for religion, which is what the Catholic Church fucking does. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. If you get rid of the icons, what's left? Yeah. So the Pope didn't (laughs) love that. Uh, That was a a bit of an issue there. Um, I found it a little unclear exactly when the the papal states as they are soon going to be called split from the byzantine empire but Mm. that's going to happen in the next century or two uh just another little side note the byzantine empire is a phrase that was came up with after the fall of the byzantine empire they just called themselves the roman empire yeah (laughs) obviously of course yeah yeah okay what else would they do so yeah byzantine (laughs) is a word that i don't know if the word existed in some context but they were not called the byzantine empire until after they had fallen to the ottomans many centuries later huh the things they don't tell you at school man (laughs) (laughs) so the byzantine empire at this point managed to claw back some of the italian lands that they had lost during the fall of the western roman empire in the sixth century but they would eventually lose them to the lombards who really ruled the italian peninsula until the papal states were formed in the eighth century so the best i could tell the formation of the papal states is when they split away from uh, the Byzantine Empire, but no one was super clear on that. Okay. Um, so they were able to form their own nation due to a number of things happening at once. This is another real stroke of historical luck that we're coming across for these enclave <laughs> nations. Um, the first thing is that Pope Stephen II would cross the Alps in 754, uh, marking the first time a pope had ever crossed the Alps. Mm. Uh, And he would support a guy named Pepin the Short uh, for Frankish king. Now, Pepin would become a really important figure for two reasons. He was the first king, uh, the first Frankish king in the Carolingian line. uh, And more importantly, he was Charlemagne's father. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Shoot. Okay. So. Um, Sorry, what's, what's Frankish? French. 
basically. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what I thought, but I'm yeah. glad to have the clarification. Thank you. Um, I think there's some difference in possibly between Frankish and what is now modern France, sure, but sure. roughly France. That's all right. Borders changed. Yeah. There were a lot of wars. I get it. Um, so in return for Pope Stephen II crossing the Alps and supporting Pepin's bid for rulership, mm-hmm. uh, Pepin made a vow that he would, after ascending the throne, come down and recapture a lot of those Byzantine lands that had been lost to the Lombards. Okay. And after ascending the throne two years later, uh, he would come down and take those lands from the Lombards and donate them to... Oh, he actually did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good yeah. for him. And he donated them to the Pope. So this is known as the donation of Pepin. Okay. Uh, another thing that happened here <laughs> is amazing. Oh, it's so <laughs> great. The donation of Constantine is a document that was probably written somewhere in the 700s, uh, like in the 8th century, it was proven to be a forgery in the 1400s. Mm. So how obvious it must have been that they could <laughs> definitively prove it was a forgery in the 1400s. This is fucking amazing to me because they don't become a nation if some priest just makes this shit up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in this supposedly, you know, 400-year-old document that some priest happened to find very conveniently. (laughs) Quote-unquote, Constantine uh, says that he just leaves the entire Western Roman Empire to the Pope. Ain't that convenient. They bought that? Yeah. Come on, guys. Come on. (laughs) Apparently, people would start to question its legitimacy as early as the 10th or 11th century not but it immediately was, no but it was <laughs> definitively disproven in the 1400s i believe okay. around 1440 the thing is in the 1400s they were still i feel like treating everything with leeches and did not have they didn't know they thought the world was flat still and at least based on the records we have of the donation the donation of charlemagne the church played this so fucking smart because <laughs> what they did is they made like indirect allusions to it years before they would actually like pull it out and oh. use it as an established thing in international yeah. politics so they had then like years of sort of vague allusions to the Constantine donation before they really pulled it out and were like, hey, Constantine told us we could have this shit. That is slimy, but really smart. But also, <laughs> I can't believe I love even, it so much. like I feel that for credibility's sake, if it was me and I was forging that document, I'd be like, okay, maybe we'll take like three quarters of it or something. Or half, even. To just be like, no, everything. Well, and certainly, certainly they didn't just... You can't just be like, we take the whole Roman Empire. Like, no. people are living there. Yeah. But the they would use it throughout the years to be like, hey, Constantine said, though, Daddy Const, he said... <laughs> and they would just keep calling back to it. Like, how they're going to use it here is after Pepin dies and mm. Constantine ascends... The, or Constantine, uh, Charlemagne ascends yes. the throne... They write a letter being like, hey, remember that 
old letter from Constantine. <laughs> he said we could have the whole Roman Empire. Maybe you just give us a little. And Charlemagne was like, yeah, why not? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, and that would just keep happening. Fucking amazing. That is incredible. I can't believe... I can't believe that, and I'm so glad I know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So even though the Vatican was sort of a part of Rome, at this point it lay outside of the Roman city walls and was more susceptible to attacks than the rest of the city. Mm -hmm. So in the 9th century, St. Peter's Basilica, the old St. Peter's Basilica, would end up being sacked uh, in what I think I could only see referred to as a barbarian invasion. Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, don't know who did this Some one. barbarians. <laughs> but this would prompt them to uh, build the what is known as the Leonine Walls. And these are not the modern walls that mark the boundaries of the Vatican City, but parts of them still exist. And cool. they were 39 feet high. Whew. Yeah. I saw a thing once... Maybe it was the Great Wall of China that they measured in horses, where it was going to be like so many horses oh, yeah. wide at the bottom and so many horses wide at the top. And That's cool. Like, you know, I have... like that too, because we measure horses in hands. It's so confusing. It's just a very organic <laughs> measuring system, hands to horses. Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I want to know, like, maybe they got really fat horses and lined them all <laughs> up and then it was bigger than it would have been. I don't know. Uh, so during this sack as well, it's said that the the tomb of saint peter was destroyed the status of saint peter's remains is something that's a little sketchy mm-hmm. all the way throughout history and we'll talk about that a little more with the a fun anecdote in our fun facts section okay later. um Sorry, one second. Uh, so the Carolingian Empire, mm-hmm. which is at this point the the massive amount of land that Charlemagne has accumulated, would end up being blessed by the popes in 800. Um, but that empire would fall in the late 9th century and the papal states would come under the control of local Roman nobility for a time. Um, now, the confusing thing here is that Charlemagne's empire what i'm referring to as the carolingian empire is sometimes referred to as the holy roman empire like the first holy roman empire and i think it was called that at the time uh but for the purposes of history the second holy roman empire lasted a whole lot longer Mm -hmm. and did a lot more stuff (laughs) Um, so we're going to be referring to the second one as the Holy Roman Empire, because that's what we're going to get into pretty soon. Okay. Um, so the the Holy Roman Empire, the second one, was founded in the mid-10th century under Otto I. He was the first Holy Roman Emperor of the second Holy Roman Empire. Okay. All on the same page? Yes. Um So the Great Schism would occur around 1054, and this is not to be confused with the Second Great Schism that we're going to get to (laughs) in about 300 years. So yeah, I'm trying to like put down some questions and I'm so confused already. Oh yeah. Yep. (laughs) So this one is known as the East-West Schism, or we are at least going to refer to it that way. It is sometimes called that. Um, schism is a fun word. It is. I love the word schism. schism. It's great fun. Schism. <laughs> uh, so this is the split of the Catholic and Orthodox Church mm-hmm. along East and West lines. And this is a 
not something that's going to be a super huge deal for the Vatican City as a locality, but it's a really big deal for the Pope's worldwide power. Yeah. Uh, the Orthodox Church to this day is the second largest single church in the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to group up some of the Protestant groups, they would have th- they would have more people than orthodoxy but protestant groups tend to be so like sub-organized and splintered Mm -hmm. there's 220 million orthodox christians in the world and that is one monolithic wow there are for example 280 million pentecostal pentecostalist um protestants in the world but they are then further divided into smaller right, groups. Right. This is also really testing my enormous religious naivete. Um, the, I know nothing. I know what most of these words kind of mean. But yeah, there's an enormous, enormous breadth of Christian churches across the world. I do know that. I don't know if I know the extent to which. But it, it really matters for the purposes of a nation who ostensibly owns the worldwide Catholic church. Yes. Um, so about 20 years after the great schism, a struggle would start between the German King Henry, the fourth, not to be confused with Shakespeare's <laughs> King Henry, the fourth different guy. Yep. Uh, uh, between the German King Henry, the fourth and Pope Gregory, the seventh. And this was known as the investiture controversy. Sorry, what year is this now? Uh, This would be about 1074. Okay, thank you. Um, So for those of us who don't play Crusader Kings, (laughs) A, start playing Crusader Kings. It's a great game. B, investiture is a word that refers to who has the power to nominate and install bishops. Okay. So uh, this was an issue. The king wanted to install his own bishops, the pope wanted to install his own bishops. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) Uh, They would end up having really about 50 years of conflict, the Germans and uh, the papal states here, and it would be settled with what's known as the Concordat of Worms, which allowed the church to choose their bishops, but then required the bishops to swear an oath of fealty to the king as well. Okay. Um, And just a little bit of fun info, a concordat is something that's kind of specific to the Vatican City. It is a specific kind of international agreement concerning the Vatican's right to religious leadership within that other country's borders. Sorry, can you say that again? Yeah, so Concordat <laughs> is a specific type of international agreement yes. that concerns the Vatican's right to religious leadership within another country's borders. Okay. So... If they need to talk to, you know, Peru as just a country out of a hat about how they want to run the Peruvian Catholic Church. Right. They would, whenever they figure out what they're going to do, sign that into law by way of a concordat. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I understand. (laughs) And it was during the investiture controversy that the first crusade was launched. Now, I don't want people to think I'm glossing over the Crusades because obviously the Vatican City had a huge hand in calling for the Crusades. However, they didn't really 
fight the Crusades themselves, and the Crusades were fought way the fuck away from the Vatican City. So we're not really going to talk about them with regards to the country of the Vatican City, other than to say the Vatican City ordered the First Crusade (laughs) during the Investiture Conflict, and they would continue for about 175 years. I'm sure we will revisit the Crusades. Oh, we will revisit the Crusades several times. And again. And then at the end, you're going to be like, why are we still talking about the Crusades? In the early 14th century, conflicts with the French government would end up leading to what's known as the Avignon Papacy. So uh, this is kind of interesting because uh, Pope Boniface VIII would excom- would nearly excommunicate the Kingdom of France. Mm. And then f- Italian-born French sympathizers in Rome would essentially break into the Pope residence and beat him to death. Oh, yeah. Jesus, okay. Uh, so another sort of neutral pope was elected after Boniface VIII, but he would just end up dying of natural causes after about eight months. Oh, um, it's not very long. After this, the conclave was torn over who to elect, and there was a little bit of time where they just couldn't decide, but then eventually the French king, as far as I can tell, just sort of strong-armed them into naming a French dude Pope. (laughs) And the French guy was like, I'm not going to move to Rome. (laughs) So all of a sudden, the Pope operated out of Avignon. (laughs) And this... I'm just sorry, picturing that conversation of like, so you're Pope now, the other guy's like, I'm not going. I want to stay here. They forced the conclave to make him Pope. It's not like they were like, God spoke to us and you (laughs) have to be the Pope. Like he knew it was happening. This was so weird to me. It's like, did you want to tell us ahead of time that you didn't want to move to Rome? He's like, no. But ultimately the, the Pope would continue operating out of Avignon for the next 65 years and the next seven Popes. That's a long time. Yeah. Had you ever heard of this? I had never heard of this. And I maybe studied more French history than I ever wanted to. And all seven of these popes were like people that the French king went, you, you're the pope now. Okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. So during this time, this 65 years that they're operating out of Avignon, their power over the Roman region is weakening, obviously. Yeah. Um, They would start to face local opposition from lords who had really gotten used to not having them around. Mm. Uh, They would return to Rome in 1377 under Pope Gregory XI. And ultimately, this was meant to be a temporary move. They did have a scheduled return to Avignon in, I believe, August of 1378. Uh, But he ended up just dying in the Vatican Palace in April of 1378. So that return never happened. Uh, The Cardinals acted really quickly uh, to elect a Roman pope in his place. I bet they did. (laughs) Um, From what I saw, though, some of them actually regretted operating so quickly Mm. because this would lead to the French king just being like, no, fuck you, I choose the pope. (laughs) And now we would lead to Great Schism number two. Great Schism! Yes, I want like a coaster, a t-shirt or something that says I survived Great Schism number... I don't know. Numbers one and two. (laughs) Someone who loves me went to the Great Schism number two and got me this t-shirt. So the Pope is now back in Rome, 
but the French king doesn't want to stop being in control of the Pope. So he installs another Pope in Avignon. <laughs> Uh, another another word for this, uh, another one, a word for this that us Crusader Kings players know and yes. <laughs> you others don't, is anti-pope. And ah. this is actually like the, the proper historical word for it. If there I is, figured Crusader Kings is pretty faithful yeah. to, you know, the stuff you got to be faithful to. If there is a pope elected somewhere that is not the one endorsed by the Catholic Church, then that is known as an anti-pope. Mm. So... We've got the Pope in Rome, we've got the anti-Pope in Avignon, and we've got a lot of split loyalties. A lot of people, I'm sure, have gotten used to serving the Pope from Avignon. That's been an entire lifetime. Yeah. Um, This would go on for about 30 years of dispute between the two rival Popes. In 1409, a council in Pisa would try to settle this, Mm -hmm. but ultimately both parties refused to come to the table. And Pisa was like, you guys are both bitches. We're making our own Pope. Oh no, there's a third there's one? There's a third What's pope? this guy, the anti-anti-pope? Pretty much, or okay. just another anti-pope. Um, so many popes. The the Pisan Pope would die after about a year, okay. and then his replacements would increasingly see like diminishing returns on the amount of people seeing them as legitimate. Yeah. I can see how it would be hard to be the third guy in the picture here. Oh Yeah. Yeah. Especially <laughs> the successor to the third guy. In yeah. The picture. It's kind of like, Oh yeah, you, I don't know about you. Yeah. So, um, it was by 1414 mm-hmm. that we got to the council of Constance, which would ultimately settle this schism and credit to the Pisan faction. Again, they were really the ones trying to stop all this. Mm -hmm. And they seem to have been in charge at, of facilitating the council of Constance as well. So I'm going to sound like an idiot for a second. Where is Pisa again? Italy. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. With the tower, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so ultimately what they, what they did is secured the resignation of both the Pisan Pope and the Roman Pope. Okay. The Pope from Avignon would refuse to step down and they just excommunicated him. They're stubborn, these guys from Avignon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, no, I won't do it. So the Avignon Pope has now been officially excommunicated by the Catholic Church and the Council of Constance would hold another conclave which would elect Pope Martin V. Uh, and he would end the whole succession conflict, okay. Conflict ultimately. Uh, Gregory Twelfth, who was the Roman Pope at the time of the Council of Constance, was the last Pope to resign all the way up until uh, Pope Benedict whatever number in mm. 2013. Oh. Um, so it was in the 15th century that the Pope started to live permanently within the Vatican City. This is where the sort of nation of the Catholic Church finally settles. Large parts of the area, though, had fallen into disrepair Mm. during their time away, um, including St. Peter's Basilica. So the 15th century was, in general, just a major time for the papacy looking to reestablish control over the parts of Italy they had once held. And from what I can see, historians seem really clear that the church was single-mindedly focused here on accumulating land and wealth. Mm -hmm. This is where we got uh, Pope Alexander VI, better known as Rodrigo de Borgia, who was part of the famous scheming Borgia family. Yeah, I was going to say, is that 
his papacy just to enrich and empower his son Cesare, who yeah. was trying to start his own Italian nation, right. who would end up... I don't remember if he passed through San Marino right before he died or mm. if he died in San Marino, but we did touch on uh, Cesare de Borgia mm-hmm. as well in the San Marino episode. The other guy that happened is... Uh, Julius II, known as the Warrior Pope. Uh, (laughs) And it was under Julius II that the Papal States had, on paper, the largest territory they ever held in their history. Okay. From what I could see, it seems their actual political power over a lot of this area was pretty limited. But if you were to look at a map, this was the most area they could ever say. This is at least in title ours. Mm -hmm. It was under Julius II in 1506 that the construction of the new and current St. Peter's Basilica began. Construction would continue from 1506 from 16 through to 1626. Oh. 120 years of straight construction. Something like eight architects oversaw the thing. Wow. Um, uh, Famously, Michelangelo is one of the head architects here. It would be completed 62 years after his death. Good Lord. Yeah. That's, that's a long, that's a long construction project. However, (laughs) uh, they're, they've got this huge amount of land and wealth at the beginning of the 16th century. They're not going to have all this by the end of the 16th century because Mm -hmm. in 1517, that pesky Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a door (laughs) and the Reformation starts. (laughs) So this is then exacerbated by the Edict of Worms, which is a declaration by the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, Charles V, Uh, which declares Martin Luther a heretic and bans the reading, possession, or defense of his writings. Uh, Generally, historians point to either the publication of 95 Theses or the Edict of Worms as the, like, hard starting point of the Reformation. But either way, this is... It's happening now. (laughs) It also... Like, the Reformation was such a huge deal because it also roughly coincided with the creation of the Gutenberg printing press, which meant information could spread like never before. And there's two, like all the new world explorations. Yeah. Right at this time too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So the reformation is a really hugely complicated event. One that we're going to talk about many, many times. But again, it's one of those events that mostly is being brought up here to say the Catholic Church is going to lose another big old chunk of their power worldwide Mm. because this is where we split into Catholics and Protestants. And that's a split. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know how sorely felt the Catholic Orthodox split is to this day, uh, but certainly the Catholic Protestant split is one that is still very sorely felt in a lot of places that's not a secret that's Um, yeah if we're going to talk about something like the republic of ireland versus northern ireland that's what i was thinking about uh, too yeah there's a lot of places where sectarian violence along the protestant catholic lines is still a very real thing yeah um so that's this is a really big deal that the reformation is happening But uh, in the late 18th century, the Papal States would hold a lot of the central Italian peninsula as Napoleon comes through. Mm -hmm. However, 
Napoleon comes through. In 1797, <laughs> he conquers Milan and seizes a lot of their territory and had basically taken the rest of it by 1798. Mm-hmm. Popes who spoke out against Napoleon were imprisoned until they died. Yeah. Yeah. That tracks. Uh, <laughs> The Congress of Vienna in 1815, which we've talked about a couple times now, which Mm -hmm. is just where Europe tried to figure out what to do in the vacuum left by Napoleon. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Congress of Vienna would ultimately restore a lot of this land back to the Papal States in 1815. Mm -hmm. However, they would be conquered in 1870 again during the Wars of Italian Unification. So Rome... As uh, Italy unifies, this is also not the modern Republic of Italy. This is the original kingdom of Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would take over Rome and declare it the capital. So the Pope at the time did not accept Italian rule over the Vatican, even though, you know, they were owned by the Italians. Sure. Um, And he declared himself and all successors that happened in this same situation prisoners in the Vatican. Mm. Um, A thing I learned that, again, I feel we should talk about more. Uh, Did you know it was Mussolini who gave the Vatican their independence? No? Yeah. Seriously? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So uh, (laughs) Mussolini is elected prime minister in 1922, which marks the very clear (laughs) beginning of fascist Italy. Yep. Um... Yay. And the yeah, the <laughs> Vatican would gain their independence in the Lateran Treaty in 1929. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's kind of fucked up that we don't talk about that. Yeah, I feel... Uh, and makes me wonder at the Vatican City's actions in, uh, in World War II. Really, it's... I mean, I understand a religion that's been prosecuted trying to find a place to house their religious leader. It's really the last century... Where my very serious issues, since they've been the Vatican City, the country, mm-hmm. that's where I, I think, fuck them, they shouldn't exist. Yeah. Also, they forged their whole, the document that gives them their right to exist, yeah. and we've known that for, like, 600 <laughs> years. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. But really, it's it's post-independence where a lot of my real gripes start. Um, they did stay in er, neutral during World War II, And on one hand, you want to give them the same leeway we gave San Marino here. They're a very small nation with, like, very little territory, very little population that is entirely enclosed within one of the main belligerents in this war. Mm -hmm. However, if I am to accept the Pope as a spiritual leader, Mm. as... God's representative on earth, you don't stay neutral in a conflict of that nature. Well, uh, yeah. The Pope uh, at the time, Pius Twelfth, would do what he could to open refuges for uh, Jews across his jurisdiction who were mm. seeking solace, but he did not break the Vatican's policy of neutrality as a result of the Holocaust and ultimately did not denounce the Nazi government during the war. I don't so, love that. Yeah, it's it's pretty shit. Just in general, but like it also is a place like born of fascism. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah, and you. That's why I say I have to wonder if part of the reason is that the government that gave them their independence was allied with 
the Nazis. I think almost and, certainly. It's it seems to me like you know when you read a study and the study is like, I don't know, tomatoes are bad for you, and the person who funded the study grows cucumbers, yeah. and it's like, well, obviously you think tomatoes are gonna kill you. It doesn't benefit you if people buy tomatoes. It only benefits you if people buy cucumbers. This is a silly example, but you know what I mean. Yeah. It feels a little bit like that to me. So just a couple more things we're going to talk about before we get into fun facts. Uh, In 1962, there was what was called the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, Probably better known today as Vatican II. I was going to say that's a mouthful. Which I think is a great name. (laughs) Uh, It would begin in 1962 and it would continue until 1965 where it was sort of signed in as Vatican policy, law, whatever. Mm. Um, It was meant to be sort of a reckoning for the Catholic Church to come into the modern age. So it included such wildly progressive ideas as allowing people to do mass in languages other than Latin and acknowledging (laughs) that not every Jew is directly responsible for the death of Jesus. Oh, good grief. Um, These are ideas that are still disputed by a group known as Tradcaths or traditional Catholics. This is what you're going to, the hill you're going to die on. Yeah. Yeah. As far as I can tell, the main thing uh that identifies the tradcath group is that they oppose vatican II, and apparently the main reason for that is because they said G- the the jews didn't kill jesus not not every one of them is responsible come on oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay and of course we would be remiss to talk about the vatican city without addressing allegations of widespread sexual abuse within the Catholic Church that date back as far as the 11th century, including more clearly verified cases as far back as the 15th century. Pope Francis acknowledged in 2017 that the Vatican had over 2,000 complaints in the backlog. So the Vatican has... A centuries-long history of disregarding, ignoring, and covering up sexual abuse and continuing to employ sexual abusers in positions where they will come into close contact with children. Fuck this country. Can I also say another thing that makes me angry? Yeah. They were, like, very responsible, the Catholic Church, for the rampant residential school situation here in Canada, which is, like, front of everybody's mind right now as we are dealing with that. I'm glad you mentioned it. With that grave that was discovered with the 215 unmarked and no one knows who they were kids in it um it seems there is no end to the depravity that can be carried out in the name of christianity and as long as that name is there then the vatican will support it and people keep asking for an apology on this stuff and they didn't get one yet and i'm just standing here like don't i mean don't don't implement residential schools in the first place but then oh obviously can not you not to take the blame away from the canadian government no there. well we that will also slam them hard for that was, in the canada episode. it was a many layered everybody's fault kind of a situation but, yeah, but certainly but enabled by the catholic church you can't uh, just say sorry and by know. extension the vatican yeah the world leader of the catholic church fuck this country this country shouldn't exist yeah. Let's talk about some fun facts. Okay, sounds good. I feel like these are going to be really fun, fun facts. I've got a few. Honestly, a lot of the fun facts about the Vatican are just sort of in the history. Like, there's not that many 
little things about it. Everyone knows <laughs> that like Michelangelo was a big deal. Right, there. right. Uh, but we're going to get into some things. So as I mentioned earlier on, uh, the Vatican is the smallest country in the world, both by area and by population. Mm. It is the only country whose area is most convenient to measure in hectares, <laughs> and it measures 45 hectares. It's uh, roughly so a seventh the size of Central Park. Oh, it's so cute. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to mention that the CIA World Factbook, uh, that's often useful for things like land area oh, yeah. and stuff like when that. When we research for this, I use the CIA Factbook all the time. Yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> but it does acknowledge two places as having smaller populations. They're both overseas territories of mm. other countries and one of them uh is the Pitcairn Islands which is a British overseas territory I only bring this up to recommend season one of an excellent podcast called Extremities uh the first season covers the founding of the Pitcairn Islands which is a really fascinating story they were founded by like British mutineers who washed up there it's super cool. The Pitcairn Islands also have their own troubling modern history, but uh, that's a story for another day. Yeah. Um, so a fun little fact is that the Vatican did used to have their own telescope and observatory in the Roman area, and they still do. Mm -hmm. But uh, due to Roman city sprawl and increasing light pollution in the, in the 20th century, the Holy See actually purchased a telescope on Mount Graham in southeastern Arizona. Wow. And they, they operate it in partnership with the University of Arizona. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's like way out in the middle of nowhere from what I could see. Oh, I'm too. sure. I yeah. bet you can see lots out there. It is uh, the only country on Earth that is entirely designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Mm. Like, Italy has <laughs> the most World Heritage Sites in the world, but the Vatican has that unbeatable 100% World yeah. Heritage Site range. <laughs> it makes sense if you think about it. I don't know if I Absolutely. could have just guessed yeah. that by myself, though. But, like, every piece of architecture there was built by you know, one of the all-time yeah. great engineer architects <laughs> of the Renaissance. It's, say what you will about the way the country has been operated. Certainly the architecture is historic. Absolutely. Um, the obelisk that stands in St. Peter's Square outside the Basilica was actually taken uh, originally from Heliopolis in Egypt by mm -hmm. Augustus Caesar. And Augustus Caesar brought it from Heliopolis to Alexandria, also in Egypt. But then I forget if Caligula is Augustus's grandson or great-grandson, but uh, Caligula... I have no idea. Uh, ...who would be his descendant and the third emperor of mm -hmm. Rome, decided that he wanted to bring the obelisk then from Alexandria to Rome. Oh. And we're talking about like an obelisk like a 325 yeah. ton piece of stone it's like I, over a hundred feet long the thing's how gargantuan and the the way we know how they managed to pull this off is from a record written by uh the famous roman historian and philosopher uh pliny the elder mm. and he wrote an account of the enormous obelisk ships that caligula <laughs> had built to carry this thing so they were these huge ships that sailed the mediterranean and i have no idea how they set it up when they got there if they had to build like huge scaffolding or something is the only way i can imagine it working yeah 
but they lashed the obelisk, the obelisk underneath these two ships, like under the water between them. And then they sailed in formation with this thing between them across the Mediterranean back to Rome. How'd they get it out of the water? Again, they must have had to build massive scaffolding or something. I don't know. Jesus. I don't know what sort of tools they had in the ancient Roman times to haul that sort of weight. Because this is early, like, this is the the very beginning of the Roman Empire. We're talking about the first and third emperors. Mm -hmm. Um, So Caligula, so far as I can tell brought it to his circus and in Rome mm-hmm. and it seems they didn't have at least from what i can tell it seems they didn't have the ability to stand it back up <laughs> once they got it there they got it all the way there and then they were like oh no <laughs> so it, from what i can see they just laid it down right in the middle of the circus and it was part of that sort of center that they raced around okay. in the chariot races i wonder if the people laughed about that I have to think it was part of the plan. I have to think they knew all along they weren't going to be able to stand it back up. It's funnier, though, if they get it there and then they're like, whoops. But it would end up being stood up uh, over 1,500 years later. (laughs) A guy named Domenico Fontana would be commissioned to lift it from the circus of now Nero, Mm because Nero had renamed Caligula's palace or circus, as we learned earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, he took it from Nero's Circus to where it stands now in St. Peter's Square. Okay. And he stood it up there. And we're talking about like the 1600s. Yeah. So Domenico Fontana, he is an engineer and an architect. And from the records of what he said of this task, the hardest part was picking it up, moving it, I believe, about three quarters of a kilometer and putting it back down. <laughs> yeah. The the standing it up seems to have been the easy part, is what I'm saying. Well, that's how you know. <laughs> and the standing up took over 900 men. It took nearly 100 horses, likely miles of rope. Yeah. And the, the word used in Fontana's records is countless pulleys. Probably. There are... <laughs> They made, I think they were originally wood carvings uh, of this great feat of engineering. Uh, And I will link pictures of those in the show notes because they're really worth taking a look at. And the the legend stated that there was a ball sort of at the top of this obelisk. And Mm. the legend stated that Caesar's ashes, Augustus Caesar's ashes were inside. Okay. And Fontana supposedly opened the the ball and found nothing but dust and i (laughs) i love the idea so much that he was expecting to find like caesar's skeleton or something and opened it and found caesar's ashes for real and was like it's a bunch of fucking dust get rid of it my god uh and i just wanted to bring that up before i also talk about how likely it seems to me that the remains of saint peter that have been such an important centerpiece of the Vatican for millennia at mm-hmm. this point. They're not the remains of St. Peter, right? They no. couldn't be. No, like, 
it's it is possible that they are. It is a bajillion times more likely that they that are not. It's just some random guy. Absolutely. Between the the moving after he was executed and then the moving back to the circus and then finding them and being like these are definitely the bones of yeah. St. Peter yeah. and then the tomb being sacked in the ninth century mm-hmm. and then rebuilding the whole thing. Mm-hmm. There's no way. No way in my head that those are actually the guy's remains. Perhaps the random dead guy that it is, maybe his name was Peter too. Maybe. And they were like, That's oh, one Peter for another. Fair what, enough. what does it matter really? I can give you that one. Yeah. <laughs> the food we made this week put us in a bit of an interesting predicament because the Vatican is so small that it doesn't really have its own cuisine. It's mm. entirely inside Rome. So I will say Wikipedia claims that there is one restaurant inside the Vatican City, but not taking Wikipedia's word for it. Every other source I looked at said there were zero restaurants inside the Vatican. Okay. So I couldn't, Wikipedia didn't give a name or anything. So it's not like I could find a menu and and try to recreate something. Definitely one of the popes just on Wikipedia just pretending there's yeah. a restaurant <laughs> my chef is so good yes yeah, like we'll sound cooler if there's a restaurant here right <laughs> so i i saw a lot of places saying vatican cuisine is just roman cuisine but i wanted to do something more specific than yeah. just finding a dish that's popular in rome so the dish i ended up digging up is what's called fettuccine alla papalina it which, was delicious <laughs> which translates to fettuccine of the pope and yeah it was this creamy cheesy pasta with peas and prosciutto very similar to a carbonara uh most origin stories that have been provided for it have it being based off the carbonara but it's a little sketchy where this recipe actually came from Mm. it everyone seems to agree that at some point a pope commissioned a chef and this is the pasta that was born out of it so yeah it uses prosciutto instead of uh pig cheek and there there is actually cream in this one are are really the main differences between this and a uh, carbonara we're calling it pope pasta for fun we are calling it pope pasta and uh yeah it was delicious oh aaron you know it would be funny if we made it again and somehow we managed to get like little pope like cake toppers (laughs) and put it on the pasta when you served it you could try to like shape the pasta in like a pope hat oh that's that's true you really need to get You'd probably need to cook the pasta way too stiff to eat. This unfortunately sounds like something that ends up on like our fondant hate or our shitty gift recipes or something like that. (laughs) All right. So let's take a break then and talk about the Vatican City's anthem, the Pontifical Anthem and March.
Hello and welcome back to In All of Us Command. We have just taken a listen to the Vatican City's anthem, the Pontifical Anthem and March. And I do keep saying this is the Vatican City's anthem, but uh, it really is not intended to function as a national anthem. Like, if we're going to talk about this in sort of U.S. anthem terms, this is Hail to the Chief. Mm. It's not the Star-Spangled Banner. This is definitely an outlier. Yeah, it is the Pope's anthem and not the country's anthem. Yeah. So it was composed in 1869 Mm -hmm. for Pope Pius IX. And uh, if you'll remember, Pope Pius IX was the Pope who was in charge in 1870, just a year later, when the Papal States would be annexed into the Kingdom of Italy. Mm -hmm. So this is composed just a year before we go into that period of the popes in captivity. Um, And it was composed by a guy named Charles Gounod. And Gounod was really a bit of a celebrity at the time. He's probably the biggest name we've seen in like anthem writers so far and possibly the biggest one we're ever going to have. I have to say the biggest name in anthems is cracking me up a little bit. I mean, it's (laughs) fair, but... uh, This dude's a big deal. Like, he wrote an opera based off of Faust, Mm -hmm. which is still performed all around the world. Mm. Uh, It was the first opera ever performed at the New York Metropolitan Opera House. Oh, wow. Good for him. Yeah. Uh, He also was known for the short pieces he wrote. And uh, he wrote this piece. He wrote sort of a melody over an old Bach piece, uh, called it a little something called Ave Maria. No. Yeah. Ave Maria? Ave goddamn Maria. Oh my God. Didn't see that one coming. Yeah. So this dude's like a star. Okay. And he wrote, both of those at least were published for the first time in 1859, Mm. 10 years before he would be commissioned to do this papal anthem. So he was a big deal. Yeah. Um, it was commissioned for the ordination march of Pope Pius IX. So it was the music that was written to be played at the ceremony where he became the Pope. Mm. Uh, that performance featured seven bands and over a thousand vocalists. Sorry, seven bands and a thousand vocalists? Yeah, and I'm not really sure what the vocalists were doing because Kuno's <laughs> composition, as far as I can tell, was just instrumental. The lyrics would not be written for 70-ish years. Maybe they provided other vocal entertainment. Maybe. They sang other songs? Maybe. That's, for that's the occasion. Fair. Maybe they I sang Ave Maria, yeah. <laughs> or they were just set decoration. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, so there was another song called Marcia Trionfale, which I believe is Triumphal March. Mm-hmm. And that was written in 1867, only two years before Guno was hired to write uh, the Marche Pontificale. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had become the pontifical anthem in the time since 1867. Mm-hmm. So when Vatican City gained their independence from the Kingdom of Italy, they made that their sort of de facto national anthem it it wouldn't be until 20 years later in 1949 that marsh pontifical would be chosen to replace it okay and i didn't really find anyone talking about why the choice was making making <laughs> jesus christ why the choice was made i'm never gonna let you forget that one yeah that's good yeah. I, I don't deserve to forget that one make it <laughs> 
<laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> uh, but I, I did understand that the pontifical march was really popular from the first time it was played. So maybe just because more people liked it. Yeah. Uh, but in 1949, when it was debuted, they hired a organist from St. Peter's Basilica named Antonio Allegro to write the official Italian lyrics for the anthem. So okay. this is the first time it has official lyrics. Mm. And the anthem in this form, uh, its first performance with lyrics and as the national anthem, is then performed on Christmas Eve of 1949 as uh, a way to premiere it sort of at the, the end of one year and the beginning of a new one. I like that. And they also played Marcia Trionfale just after as sort of a token of honor for their old anthem being waved away, mm. which I thought was a really nice touch. That is a nice touch. There are Latin lyrics that were written in 1991, mm -hmm. and I'm a little unclear as well about the origin of the Latin lyrics. It wasn't clear to me whether they were commissioned or whether they just became popular, mm -hmm. but virtually every vocal version I could find was in Latin. That um, surprises me. You'd think... I mean, the Catholic Church has a long history with Latin. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we did talk in the Vatican II section about it being only the 60s that it wasn't required by religious law yeah. to do mass in Latin. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Just that uh, no, no one really speaks it, you yeah. know, around for communicating. It's just sort of ceremonial. But I can see how it is important to the place and how it would be popular there. But uh, either way, the Latin lyrics, whether they were officially commissioned or not, do seem to have become the lyrics that more people use. And we'll talk about that a bit in our rating section. I do think they're just better lyrics. Yes. Okay. Um, and the, these Latin lyrics were written by a guy named Don Raffaello Lavagna, which my computer desperately wanted to switch to Don Raffaello Lasagna, <laughs> but he's not a cartoon character in a chef hat. So it's too bad. Yeah, Lavagna <laughs> it is. Uh, he seems to have been in the 70s and 80s a reasonably well-known sort of Italian children's playwright. Okay. I found mentions of him with an organization called Assetege, and the acronym makes a lot more sense in French. It was <laughs> clearly originally written in French, so the thing I'm about to say is not going to make sense as a shortening of Assetege, right. just a warning. Uh, it is the International Association of Theater for Children and Young People. Mm. Uh, it's a worldwide group where... Children's theater professionals from all these different companies will get together at these world congresses and have this cultural exchange of ideas, sort of talk about the state of children's theater in their country and what they're doing well and what they want to bring in and learn about what other people are doing. Hmm. And it seemed like a really fascinating uh, organization. It seems like it is still active as well. That's very cool. Uh, it seems like his best-known work is a Commedia dell'arte-inspired version of Pinocchio, okay. which seems to have been performed a number of places across the 70s and 80s. Hmm. So that is about all of the history I have. Uh, just a little side note, the first eight bars of the anthem are played at the raising of the Vatican flag. Interesting, okay. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's really all I have. And we can talk a bit now about the ratings of this thing. Yeah. 
So let's talk about the lyrics. And this one's tough because we do have the Italian lyrics and the Latin lyrics, and we're looking at translations of both, which is always unfortunate. Yeah, I found, though, even with that, the, the, the Italian one doesn't really move me. No, the Italian ones are very straightforward. And I know we've talked in the past about like, you know, the really straightforward, boring thing for an anthem to be about is we like our country. God likes our country. Our country is good. The end. It's true. That is really the basic anthem structure. But it does make sense on one hand for that to be the structure of the Vatican City's anthem. Yeah, because if God doesn't like your country, then what have you got? Yeah, they're really the only... Active theocracy we've got going as far as I know. But counter to that, the the Latin ones, like this fantastic, that reads like a Shakespeare speech, oh, like a Latin once more into the breach. So like And that's why I think even if they weren't officially commissioned, I can see how they would have taken over the Italian lyrics. Me They're too. So dramatic and they acknowledge so much more of the history. Yeah. Um yeah. I really like that these Latin lyrics acknowledge the origin of the whole thing whether it's legend or not the the origin in legend is saint peter being crucified at Mm -hmm. the hill on vatican and that i think is really important to mention in the lyrics and i like that the latin ones you know have got a little more meat on their bones i agree it's much more poetic and it also functions much better as sort of what they claim the anthem to be. The Italian lyrics feel a lot more like a national anthem, whereas these Latin lyrics do feel more like an anthem for the Pope. Mm -hmm. I agree. So when it comes to rating this, what are we going to average it or? Yeah, I think I'm looking at probably a five for the Italian lyrics and maybe a nine for the Latin lyrics. So I'm going to average that out to a seven. Yeah, I'm going to go similarly four on the Italian ones and probably eight and a half for the Latin. That's going to put us at 6.25. Sorry for the, I don't have to. I can round it up. I can do a nine also if that's easier. Yeah, let's make it 6.5. Okay. Just just make everyone's lives easier. We don't need our first quarter score. No, that's going (laughs) to confuse things and also open the door for other tweaking in the future, which is, no, we leave that door shut. Yeah. (laughs) So a thing that got to me with the music is I usually like to do my research on the history of the anthem before I actually get into looking for the versions we're going to listen to. I like to, like, for example, there was the one country where it was supposed to be a blend of whatever French and I don't even remember what country I'm talking about, but they really tried to make it like a compromise with French music for whatever reason. And I like to know that (laughs) stuff before I go in listening. Just so if it's really not what I'm expecting, then I can have some frame of reference for that, you know? Mm -hmm. And having done the research before I listened to this one and learned that it was composed by this you know, rock star Ave Maria <laughs> opera composer. Mm-hmm. I was really psyched to hear it. And the music's pretty dull. Yeah, I was also underwhelmed. It's um, not 
bad. Like, at no point is it unpleasant to listen no, to. It's just it's boring. just sort of meh. I have a lot of respect for the organist in the one version. Yes. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of respect for anyone who can competently play the organ. Yeah, and he has really good posture, and, I mean, that's something. But, yeah, the music itself, I'm kind of neither here nor there on it. Yeah, and yeah. certainly I think... Um, I think Gounod's original composition is a lot closer to what is played to back up the vocal versions we have. Mm -hmm. But since it was going to be just the same thing, backing up the vocal versions, I wanted to give us a different take on the instrumental. And I thought an organ would be appropriate. Yeah, it was. It was great. Uh, so for the music, I think I'm going to go four and a half. Yeah, I'm going to go five. I was not feeling it particularly the background story though i think there's a lot there i wish i could have found a bit more of the connective tissue you know more about the life of the guy who wrote the italian lyrics more about what happened to get raffaello lavagna involved Still, in writing though, the latin lyrics comparatively to some of the stuff with like half the time you look up these anthems and it's just like it was written by this guy with music by this other guy yeah. and that's it. You then look up the person only and the only thing that they're credited with is writing the anthem. So you're just kind of stuck in a loop yeah. and you have more than that already, which is like fantastic. So yeah, I agree with you. I think the, it would be nice if there was more, but it would always be nice if there was more. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think what, what we have is pretty rich as it is. Um, I, I would go eight for the backstory. Yeah. Eight's what I was thinking too. Yeah. Let's talk significance to the country, of which I think there's a lot going on in these Latin lyrics mm. and, you know, a little bit in the Italian lyrics. It is very straightforward, like, we are a little country that loves God. Yep. And, <laughs> you know, fair enough. Yeah. It's not wrong. It's just unexciting. <laughs> It's true. It's true. And they certainly try to like pump it up in the Latin version. Yes. Which and is cool. I, I like how much there is being said in these Latin lyrics. Like I said, the acknowledgement of the origin of things with the crucifixion of Peter, the acknowledgement of the Pope as Peter's successor, mm -hmm. as the vicar of Christ on earth. Like there's a lot. It really is just very getting it all out there in the Latin lyrics. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of significance to be had there. So I think I'm also going to go with an eight on this section. Yeah. I think what's this category again? So significance. significance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I agree with you. I'm maybe going to go 8.5 just to be different. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, not to mention just the fact that the lyrics are in Latin. And as we said, the yeah. Catholic church has this long tradition of sticking to the Latin language for their sort of ceremony. Indeed. X factor though. Uh. I wish I could <laughs> score it higher because, you know, I scored it well on lyrics, on background story, on significance, but it just doesn't quite gel. It's not. Yeah. There's no, there's no X factor for me. There's almost. no oomph. It's Yeah. And like you said, these Latin lyrics read like a Shakespeare monologue, but they're not 
being sung in English. So to me, that Latin's very pretty to listen to, but I'm not getting anything out of it. I'll catch the occasional, you know, Christy and be like, oh, they're singing about Christ. Yeah. But that's all I've got. Yeah, I'm with you. X Factor for me, this is going to suck a little bit. I'm going to go three, I think. Yeah, I think I'm going to go four on this one. Yeah. So let's take a second then and total these scores up. Sure. That brings us to a total score of 62.5 out of 100. Okay. It's not the worst, but... It's not the worst, but it's pretty lacking, it, to be honest. It is. I was expecting is. this one to finish a little higher. Yep. Um, I had some questions. Yes, you Before did have break. some questions can, for me. Can we talk about those for yeah, a sec? Yeah, so I don't think we actually got those questions on mic if you wanted so, to uh, share those with the audience. I will say my questions. I had three of them. Um, they were kind of silly, but we're going to go ahead anyways. Um, my first was that I would like to see a picture of the Vatican City flag if they had one of those. Yeah, I got one pulled up on your laptop there for you to look at. Yes, it's very nice. Yeah, I think it's a really cool flag. I love the, the bright yellow and white combination. I love the... The, is it two keys, I think, cross? Yeah, it is a gold and a silver one. Yeah. With like a little a little cross in between, like making the inside part. It It's really nice. I think the red is a, a very cool, like, sort of accent color. Yeah. And I don't normally like sort of silver and gold together. I find that, I don't know, it's kind of weird sometimes. But here I think actually it looks very nice um, on the yellow and the white. Yeah, I think it's a really well-made flag. It's good. It's a very nice flag. Um, my second question was with regards to Pepin, the short. Yes. Um, I would like to see a picture of Pepin. So I did pull up a portrait for you yes. here. Uh, I've also got a little side by side comparison, a funny little edit of him on a chair to I'm... show how short he is. <laughs> I'm looking at it. It's, it's very funny. Um, <laughs> I will link to that one in the show notes cause it made me laugh quite a bit as the, well. The thing about these medieval portraits, like, I don't really know what this guy looked like. Yeah, I mean, even from the he had a funny mustache, so I, that's something. I know that he was also known. He was known as Pepin the Short. He was also known as Pepin the Younger. Mm. So I don't know if one of those came first and then later he was known as the other, or maybe it changed throughout history. What we talked about him as, yeah. Um, I don't know if he was actually that short. Okay, I guess it's all relative too. Right now, we're so much taller than. Yeah, like how short is short in the medieval times. I don't know. Anyway, um, that was my second question. My last one was uh, just with regards to what all the Vatican City was doing in World War One, because we talked a lot about World War Two. Yeah, and I guess the reason we didn't talk as much about World War One is because they really weren't a country yet in yeah. World War One. They were still being occupied by the Kingdom of Italy and had not yet gained their independence. It makes a lot of sense then that they didn't do that much <laughs> yeah so the the pope during world war one I, I believe it was benedict the 15th mm. uh he would do a lot to try to get the two sides in world war one to come to the bargaining table from what i could see okay um he did really elevate the pope in the public eye as a world leader from mm. what i could see people really responded well to Benedict the 15th using his position as a religious leader to just pull for peace. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's, I find it easier to not 
I find it easier to not hold it against them that they stay neutral, A, because they're not a country, and mm-hmm. I guess really just because they're they're not a country. When they, yeah. they are their own sovereign state, and they are right there allied with Italy, that seems... Yeah. Not allied, but, like, within Italy. Attached and to. Sort of tacitly working with... The, Mussolini gave them their fucking end. I don't I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand. Um, thank you for answering my questions. No problem. And for providing me with this hilarious picture of Pepin. The it, it's great. Uh, definitely check the link to that one in the show notes for just a fun little giggle yep. at Pepin the Short. <laughs> so let's take a second then, and we will... Uh, Roll our giant 206-sided die and see what I will be doing in two weeks. The wheel has spoken. It will be number 141. Okay, so that gives you Palestine. Ooh. You serious? I'm serious. Okay, I'm probably not making any (laughs) friends in two weeks. I mean, it's all going to come up at some point. It's all going to come up at some point. This, I am going to be walking on eggshells, man. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. Oh, yeah. We will do this one with a large disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> um, additionally, countries that most fucked Vatican City. Eh. Does it really matter? Yeah, who cares? Yeah, okay. That's our answer for this week. Um, join us next week while I talk about the United Arab Emirates. Did we get something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC Podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we are not too big to admit we are wrong, and it will be corrected. <laughs>